If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you look at the French, British, and Italians, their starting point was that going back to pre-1914 would be a disaster because then they would have to explain to their public what the war had been for, what had these hundreds of thousands of casualties been suffered for. That was David Stevenson talking about the First World War in 1917. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Professor David Stevenson of the London School of Economics. David is one of Britain's foremost experts on the First World War, and he's recently written a major new history of the year 1917. I caught up with him a little while back to find out more. So, David, we're talking today about your new book, 1917, War, Peace and Revolution. So could you please just, first of all, set the scene for our listeners in terms of what the shape of the world was, and particularly the First World War, at the start of 1917? Well, at the start of 1917, one of the reasons why I focused on it is it's the second major turning point, really. There are, there are two turning points in the history of the First World War. The first one is the autumn of 1914, when the opening campaigns and war of movement failed and uh, the fighting bogged down in the stalemate that we think of as typical in the trenches on the Western Front, but there are also trenches on other fronts as well. So the bogging down of the war in the first autumn is the first key turning point, beginning of the great phase of stalemate and battles of attrition in the middle years. By the beginning of 1917, you're into a second turning point when the pattern of deadlock and attrition begins to shift, though not completely. The two benchmark headline events in the spring of 17 are the Russian Revolution, the overthrow of Tsar Nicholas II on the one hand, and American entry coming into the war Um, in April 1917 on the other. Two other points to set the scene. The first thing is that during 1916, Europe had seen enormous battles and unprecedented, the costly battles, Verdun, the Somme, the Brusseloff offensive in Eastern Europe, 
which had gone on for months and cost hundreds of thousands of casualties. And there's no real historic precedent for that. So by the beginning of 1917, decisions to keep on fighting, no one could have any illusions really about what those decisions would mean. The other point to bear in mind as immediate setting the background is the winter of 1916-17, which is one of the harshest in European memory. It's partly because the winter is so harsh. This is what one of the things that helps to trigger the Russian Revolution. So the conditions on the home front as well as on the battlefront were also becoming much more difficult, much more rigorous and much more severe. And your book focuses a lot on specific decisions. And I suppose one of the most important would have been Germany adopting unrestricted submarine warfare. Why would you say they, that they took this decision, considering the risk it had of bringing America into the war? I think not just risk, but virtual certainty. Um, from the German leader's perspective, they knew it was extremely likely that adopting unrestricted submarine warfare would bring America in. What unrestricted submarine warfare meant in a word is uh, torpedoing without warning. It wasn't that there hadn't been submarine attacks before, um, but the tendency before 1917 was the submarines at least to surface and give warning before sinking their victims. But they'd also experimented with unrestricted submarine warfare previously in 1915 and 1916 and elicited a very strong American reaction. So they knew there was a high chance, almost certainty, that the Americans would come into the war, but the gamble that the Germans took was that unrestricted submarine warfare and doing it with larger numbers of submarines than before would be so effective that effectively they would be able to starve the British Isles out into surrender um, within five months. And if that happened, even if America came into the war, uh, it would make no difference. The, the Germans effectively would have won. Now, there's a note of desperation in all of this. And part of the reason, I think, is that the moderates in Germany, such as the Chancellor, Theobald von Bettmann-Holweg, who had previously opposed unrestricted submarine warfare and said it would be suicidal, these people were running out of alternatives to offer. Partly precisely because of what I mentioned earlier on, these huge attrition battles in 1916, the Battle of the Somme had been very costly for the British, but very costly for the Germans too. And also the sense that time was against the Germans, that they faced an Allied blockade, increasing possibility of their economy collapsing and their allies, Austria-Hungary and Turkey, also collapsing. So that if simply continuing on was no longer seen as an acceptable solution by the German Navy and the German High Command, and the high command, new high command under Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff were implicitly inclined to action rather than waiting. And they were men who the Kaiser Wilhelm II was afraid of. So the balance within Germany among the decision-making elite had shifted in favour of those, if you like, who were willing to take gambles and were reckless against the people who urged caution. And from the American point of view, prior to Germany taking this decision, what was the mood of the country in terms of the war? Was there a broad swathe of support for coming into the conflict or was it still fairly isolationist? There wasn't um, a consensus in favour of intervention in the United States until really after the Germans took the plunge and declared unrestricted submarine warfare in February of 17. Before that point, of course, we don't have opinion polls, but we can gauge the mood of the American press, newspaper editorials, we can look at Congress, we can look at reporting from informed observers like the Allied ambassadors. All of this suggests that there was no consensus in favour of intervention and the majority of the American public, if they had a view, was a view that they might have sympathies with one or other side, but they didn't think America should get involved. 
And that changed really from February 1917 onwards, partly because of the Germans' actions in sinking Allied and American ships and killing Americans, American citizens, on the high seas, but also because of German mistake, really, a terrible blunder, the so-called Zimmermann telegram. The German foreign minister sent a secret message that the British intercepted and passed on to the Americans, but this message proposed that if America came into the war, Germany and Mexico should ally so that Mexico could regain American territory it had lost to the Americans in the 1840s in Texas, New Mexico, California, and also that Japan should switch sides and join the Germans and uh, Mexicans against the Americans, which was going to be something that would have a big impact in California, where there was a great deal of resentment and anxiety about Japanese immigration. So the Zimmerman telegram was well calculated to antagonize the various parts of the US, or most of them, which had previously been most remote from the armed conflict, as well as the East Coast, where the East Coast had been the center of interventionist feeling before 1917. And then looking at the conflict as a whole, to what extent can we see American intervention as the decisive factor in the Allies ultimately winning the war? Well, I would say that without the Americans coming into war, into the war, if you kind of run a counterfactual, it's reasonable to assume that at best the Allies would have got an unfavourable draw. Because in, as we move on into 1917, there's a succession of Allied disasters, most of which it's reasonable to have assumed would have happened if the Americans had stayed neutral. The Russian Revolution is obviously the first one, the overthrow of Tsar Nicholas II, which derails the Allied Spring Offensive, which otherwise had reasonable prospects of success in spring of 1917. Um, the second thing is the mutinies in the French army that follow the failure of the Allied Spring Offensive. Um, also, we know, which the Germans didn't know, that the British were finding it very, very difficult to sustain the financial and economic burden of uh, supporting the Allied war effort. And uh, within weeks of a situation where they would have to devalue the pound or they would run out of foreign exchange reserves to continue purchases from the US, both of which things would have had a very serious impact on the um, logistics and the material basis of the Allied war effort. So the Allies economically and militarily and politically and psychologically were vulnerable. If you put all those things together and assume that the United States had not come into the war, then I think the most likely outcome would have been some kind of negotiated peace on terms which have not had favoured the Allies. As we know, the deadlock on the Western Front wasn't broken in 1917, but at any point in the year, did that come close to happening? Well, I don't think so. Obviously, it's really a question about the Allies because the Germans were not on the offensive on the Western Front in 1917. So the big attempts to break through were first and out the Allied Spring Offensive, which was first and foremost a French offensive. This is the so-called Nivelle Offensive, named after the French Commander-in-Chief, April 1917. The second one is the British-led operation, which is usually known as the Third Battle of Ypres, um, which runs between July and November. The first one, the French Spring Offensive, was, was never remotely close to success. And in fact, when it was launched, the French high command already knew the chances of success are very slim. In particular, the French had hoped to break through by relying on surprise, but the surprise was gone. The Germans knew the attack was coming, knew where it was coming, and were thoroughly prepared to meet it. If one looks at the Third Battle of Ypres, um, the British attempt to break through to the Channel ports, to Ostend and Seebrugge in Flanders, the Germans calculated that they could stop that on the third 
of five lines of defence that they'd constructed in the Ypres salient. The Germans knew the Ypres salient was an area where they were vulnerable and an area that therefore they needed to build very strong defences in. And essentially the Germans halted the British where they'd expected to halt them, though at the price of enormous casualties on both sides. There is one point in the Third Battle of Ypres in late September, early October, where the British were making very considerable progress and the Germans weren't quite sure whether they could halt them. British Army's tactics and weaponry had become much more effective by 1917 than they had been in 1916 on the Battle of the Somme. What intervened on the Germans' behalf was the weather. It was very bad in August and very bad again in October. These things contributed as well as the success of German defensive tactics in uh, stopping the Third Ypres campaign from really getting much beyond its initial objectives. The Third Ypres campaign, or I guess it's more popularly known as Passchendaele, certainly here in Britain, is often seen as emblematic of the futility and horror of the Western Front. Is that a view that you yourself share? Well, I think I do. There's the proviso, as I've just hinted, that there are sections of the battle where the British appear to be more successful, their, their tactics are delivering results. This is true of the opening phase, uh, the Battle of Messines Ridge in June of 1917, and it's also true of a number of the battles conducted under the auspices of, of General Plumer in late September and early October. The other phases of the battle in August and October and into early November when the weather was bad, these are emblematic of the very worst conditions in Western Front fighting. And um, we have a lot of eyewitness testimony to support that, including British troops who remembered the Somme, which had been bad enough, was one commentator puts it, the Somme was a picnic by comparison with Passchendaele. That's putting it strongly because the Somme was pretty bad as well. But Passchendaele is much greater quantity of heavy weaponry on both sides. The Germans are now using mustard gas. The weather is worse. The terrain is worse. Um, so the conditions were absolutely terrible. Considering that there was a real lack of a breakthrough by either side, certainly on the Western Front in this year, were any attempts at all made at some kind of negotiated peace? Well, 1917 was the year in which the main attempts at negotiated peace were concentrated, and there, there were a lot of them. The story is quite a tangled one. But to simplify, there are initiatives coming publicly from neutral parties or detached parties in the conflict. One of the good examples would be the Pope's peace appeal. Benedict XV appealed on the 1st of August for both sides to go back more or less to the 1914 status quo. The other key example is the initiative among the European Socialist Parties, Allied, Neutral and German, um, in favour of a big inter-socialist conference at Stockholm. That's stopped, doesn't happen because the Allied governments veto it. Behind the scenes, there are peace feelers which in general are coming from the central powers to the Allies. Austrian peace feelers, particularly in the spring and summer, from the new Austrian Emperor, Emperor Karl I, via a French prince, who was his brother-in-law, Prince Six de Bourbon. In the summer and autumn, the Germans take over and the new German foreign minister, Richard von Kuhlmann, puts out feelers to the British, though also to the French. The pattern here is similar as with the public peace initiatives. In other words, that the central powers are putting out the initiatives and the British and French and indeed Italians are rejecting them. And the British and French and Italians are encouraged to reject them by the fact they have American support. The Americans and Woodrow Wilson take the view that it'd be premature to bring the war to an end in the summer of 1917 before American power can really be brought to bear. So essentially it's the Allies who are rejecting these peace feeders. So is that because they wanted more than just the status quo of 1914? 
Yeah, I think it is. When I say allies, I'm talking here about the Western allies. The Russians are a different matter. Uh, the Russian provisional government was very anxious by the spring and summer of 1917 to bring about a general peace. Couldn't work out how to achieve that, but I think the Russian government would have been willing to go back to the pre-1914 status quo, but the Germans weren't. Germans' demands on uh, for gain, territorial gain from Russia were too high even for the Russian provisional government to accept. On the other side of the picture, if you look at the French, British and Italians, their starting point was that going back to pre-1914 would be a disaster because then they would have to explain to their public what the war had been for, what had these hundreds of thousands of casualties been suffered for, the economic sacrifices and so on on the home front, you know, was cost of the war financially and in human terms, what was it all for if you then go back to the status quo, given that the Allied leaders had all been arguing in public that a compromise solution would simply be a truce and would not bring about a lasting peace. It was necessary to achieve a decisive victory to show the Germans that militarism and aggression didn't pay and also use that peace in order to impose peace terms that would guarantee the Allies against any recurrence of German aggression. You touched earlier on what the people at home had had to go through in the war up to this point. How was it after three years of conflict that the warring powers could encourage their people to just keep fighting? There was a lot more anti-war opposition by 1917. It's more complicated than, than in 14-15 when you can talk about a pretty widespread pro-war consensus. One of the signs of the changing mood is that Allied governments become much more involved in domestic propaganda than they'd done previously. In the first half of the war, they'd allowed the propaganda to be done by private organizations, pressure groups, political parties, and so on. In 1917, one sees the French government and British government and Italian governments, and indeed the Germans, all getting into the propaganda business themselves um, through all sorts of means, film, newspapers, public meetings, posters, all, all of these measures were being used to set out the message that the war was still a just cause, however much it had cost. And if you didn't carry the war through to a finish, the sacrifices that had so far been made would have been wasted. That's the fundamental message. But the other message that accompanies that is that it is still possible for the Allies to win, particularly now that they've got America on their side, even though it may be a long haul to achieve that. But the German government was also, and high command were also able to argue that in spite of the difficulties that they faced, that it was still actually possible also for the central powers to win, particularly because of the Russian Revolution, but also because of the efficiency of the German army, and that you'll actually look at the course of the military operations during 1917, the central powers generally get the better of the Allied armies. So that too was a case for saying on the, the German and even Austrian side that the campaigning was going their way. If they persisted a bit longer, it was still possible to win the war or at least get a favorable outcome. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Now, we've mentioned the Russian Revolution a couple of times already. In fact, there were two revolutions in Russia that year. To what extent were these revolutions the product of the war or were there more important other forces underlying them? Well, there are other forces. Of course, there's a long revolutionary tradition in Russia, an underground movement of opposition to the Tsarist regime, which goes back well into the 19th century. That's fueled partly by deep underlying political problems, the dissatisfaction of many educated Russians with the nature of the autocracy in Russia, and also conditions of extreme social inequality and hardship in the countryside and in the cities. So the revolution hasn't come from nowhere. There is a continuing historical debate about this. I think most historians would say that as of 1914, Russia was not in a revolutionary situation, though there was a great deal of working class unrest. Which means, in other words, the fact that a revolution breaks out in spring of 1917, in, in March by the Western calendar and overthrows Tsar Nicholas, that is made possible at that time by the impact of the First World War. First of all, its impact on the Russian economy, generating a very serious food shortage, which is the immediate thing that triggers the popular unrest and the protest movements in the Russian capital city, Petrograd. That you can see more or less directly as, as a result of the war. It's leading to inflation, leading to a breakdown of food supply, damaging the Russian railway system. And also, the other important contribution of the war is in undermining discipline in the Russian army, which had suffered enormous casualties by 1917. Um, much of the old traditional officer corps had been killed. Many of the Petrograd garrison who rebel and mutiny in the spring of 1917, don't support the Tsar, were men in their 40s, family men who had no desire whatever to be sent to the front, felt a lot of common ground between themselves and the protesting crowds who they were being ordered to shoot at. On the October Revolution, the second revolution, it's called the October Revolution, though by the Western calendar it happened in November, I think it's possible to argue, if you want to run a counterfactual, that even without the First World War, Tsar Nicholas II's autocracy might well have been overthrown at some point by force, though not in 1917. What's very difficult to argue without the impact of the First World War is that the Bolsheviks would have seized power. Bolsheviks still a tiny minority in Russia as far as we can ascertain in the spring of 1917. By the autumn of 1917, they have support perhaps of a quarter of the population, though we can't be sure, particularly in key cities and industrial areas and in the army. And that is the most important single reason why Russian opinion gets radicalized and Lenin and the Bolsheviks are able to capitalize on that, is because they are the one major party that is intransigently opposed to continuing the First World War. By taking Russia out of the First World War, what impact does that have on the wider conflict? Well, less than you might think. Um, it took them a long time to get Russia out of the war. It took them from uh, the seizure of power in November until March 1918. March 1918 is when the brest Peace Treaty is signed, and uh, the terms of this essentially are that the Bolsheviks, uh, led by Lenin and Trotsky, give the central powers everything they demand, so Russia loses about a third of its population and territory, much of it inhabited by non-Russians, but still they lose control of Poland, the Ukraine, and the Baltic provinces, as well as Finland, all of which areas become dominated by the central powers. So it's a, a major development, really. Its impact on the war as a whole is less than you might think. The Germans are able to move about a, uh, a million troops westwards. It's one of the things that makes it possible for the Germans to attack in the West. 
Between March and July of 1918, the Germans launched five major offences and another desperate gamble, but an attempt now to win the war before American forces could be sent across the Atlantic and arrive in strength. The Russian Revolution isn't the only reason why the Germans do that, and it's not the only thing that makes it possible, but it's an important thing. But having said that, the Germans leave at least a million troops back in Russia, still half a million even at the end of the war, and they drive deeper into Russia after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So the peace treaty, so-called, doesn't actually end the Central Powers military operations. And they're still fighting with a bare majority in the West in 1918. And uh, by late 1918, they're very seriously outnumbered as the American troops arrive in strength. And a major reason for that is they continue to keep large contingents of forces in the East. And obviously this is very much a global war. So what do you see as the key developments away from the European theatres in 1917? One of the obvious major developments is the expansion of the war to include new powers. And most of this is pretty much a direct consequence of the German submarine warfare and the Americans coming in. Give two examples. One is Brazil. Most of Latin America... Uh, Central America and parts of South America break off relations with Germany. A number of those countries eventually also declare war on Germany. Brazil's the most significant, and Brazil did actually send a small fighting force to France and engages in the naval warfare, as well as engaging in the Allied blockade against the Central Powers. Um, and the, the Brazilians come in for similar reasons to the Americans, that unrestricted submarine warfare means several Brazilian ships are sunk and Brazilians lose their lives. Plus, there are underlying pro-Entente sympathies, pro-Allied sympathies in Brazil. So Brazil coming into the war means an extension of the conflict into Latin America. Um, another example is China, which enters the war in August 1917. And uh, this, too, is something whose timing is largely decided by American entry. Um, the Chinese have their own agenda, and their primary agenda is anti-Japanese. They're concerned about Japanese expansion into China, taking over control of the former German leased area around the province of Shandong, area of great significance to the Chinese. It's a birthplace of Confucius and it's strategically close to Beijing and so on. The Japanese are taking control of that area in 1914-15 and the Chinese want to get it back. They know they're too weak to do it themselves, but they're looking for Allied and American sympathy and support. And they think that bringing China into the war will help in that. The most significant way in which Chinese intervention actually makes a contribution is the movement of Chinese labourers to help the British and French armies on the Western Front, which is developing from 1916 and continues after China comes into the war. About 100,000 uh, join the Chinese Labour Corps, and they're very important and valuable addition both to the British and French armies in doing tasks like building railways, guarding depots, digging trenches, burying bodies on the Western Front. Another key moment outside of the European theatre is the Balfour Declaration, which we're now very close to the centenary of that. But how do you think we should be reflecting on the Balfour Declaration 100 years later? Well, this is going to be one of the most controversial, of course, of all of the declarations and centenary events of 1917. What I've tried to do in the book is to give an accurate account as I can of the reasons as to why the decision was made and what led to it. And this means reconstructing in some detail the decision-making of the British cabinet. That's important, I think. We need to take, if you like, the declaration on its own terms, place it in the context of the time and the factors which led to it. It was a very 
contentious issue even at the time. The cabinet discussed it three times before they finally reached a conclusion that the things they argued about were considerably different from the factors that make the declaration controversial now. But what I try to argue here is that there are two strands really leading into the British decision to issue the declaration. The first one is a strategic concern with British interests in the Middle East. 1917 is a pivotal year in the campaigning against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it's the year in which British forces overrun Baghdad and overrun Palestine. So what are now Iraq and Israel, in, that, in those times Mesopotamia and the Holy Land, British made a decision in the spring of 1917 that they wanted more or less permanently to incorporate those areas into British imperial control, that they were concerned about protecting the Suez Canal and they were concerned about protecting the Persian Gulf and to some extent about the Persian Gulf oil. So that's the first thing. And the backing that the British gave to the Zionist cause was partly because they thought that uh, a Jewish, enlarged Jewish community in the Holy Land would be a source of support for the British Empire and British imperial objectives. The second thing that becomes really important by the final stages of 1917 before the decision is taken is the propaganda value of the declaration. Because by November 1917, British troops are advancing in Palestine and actually take Jerusalem in December, so they have control of the situation on the ground, more or less simultaneously with issuing the declaration. So the crucial issue that's urged in the cabinet by um, Balfour, Secretary of State and for Foreign Affairs and supported by the Foreign Office, is that they are impressed by the growth of support for Zionism among the global Jewish community and including in America and in Russia. And they're particularly impressed by the need to win over American public opinion and Russian public opinion to keep Russia in the war and to incline American policy in a pro-British direction. And they think that supporting the Zionist cause is a powerful means available for them to do that at a time when they haven't got much other leverage on the United States and on Russia. So these are the factors which really weigh on the British rather than looking at the situation on the ground in the Holy Land. If I can just mention two other things that really come into the debates. One is the concern that promise of support for a Jewish national home in Palestine would stimulate, increase and exacerbate anti-Semitism outside Palestine. The cabinet gives a great deal of attention to that and it's urged to do this by Edwin Montague who is the Secretary of State for India and the one Jewish member in the cabinet. The second thing of course is the position regarding the rights of the Palestinian Arabs on the ground in Palestine. And the way in which the cabinet viewed that was primarily economic. In other words, they were advised, particularly by uh, an expert called Sir Mark Sykes. The advice they had from Sir Mark Sykes was that the Palestine, if suitably irrigated and infrastructure developed, that it could support a population of four or five times the present size. So essentially what the cabinet looked at was the economic capacity of the Holy Land, and they thought that on that basis it was possible to sustain a much larger Jewish settlement population as well as the Palestinian Arab population. And that's how it was looked at rather than the danger they were going to construct and create and trigger um, a tremendous and very difficult to reconcile national conflict between Israeli or Jewish nationalism and Palestinian Arab nationalism on the other side. So with the Balfour Declaration, with the Russian Revolution, with America taking on a more global role, would it be accurate to say that 1917 was the year in the First World War that had the most impact on the 20th century? 
I'm not going to say that. I mean, I think it's imp- crucial that the war breaks out in the first place in 1914. It's also very important how the war actually ends in 1918 with an Allied victory, though an incomplete one, uh, one which the nationalists in Germany were able to argue had not been a, a, a real Allied victory. It had been something that had resulted from a stab in the back by socialists and Jews supposedly undermining the German army at home. So the way in which the war ends is important. The fact that the war breaks out in the first place is important. Where I would say 1917 is important, what I try to argue in the book is that, of course, it has all these longer-term implications, Russian Revolution, American entry events that have long-lasting global significance for the rest of the 20th century. So does the Balfour Declaration. So does the British Montague Declaration, the promise of responsible government in India. All of these things matter. But they matter, um, well, they happen, they're possible to happen because the war keeps going, that it's not ended in the spring or summer of 1917 by a compromise. And this drives the powers, if you like, to more and more important political actions, more and more significant and far-reaching. The overall argument in the book is that by 1917, the belligerent countries in Europe are in what I describe as a war trap. They've got into this situation. The war is quite different from what they'd expected, far, far worse. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for exits. A lot of the key decisions that you can see happening in the war, like the German decision for unrestricted submarine warfare, these are an attempt to find a quick exit from the conflict, relatively painless. Um, They turn out not to achieve that, and instead they get deeper and deeper into the quagmire that had been developing and becoming more and more intractable over the previous uh, two to three years. We started the conversation where you set the scene for us at the start of 1917. So could you also now, to conclude our discussion, could you give us a sense of how all the warring parties stood when the year had come to an end? Well, by the time the year comes to an end, how it will pan out in 1918 is, is becoming more clear on the horizon. Um, you have a Bolshevik government in Russia, which has signed a ceasefire as a ceasefire on the Eastern Front in December 18, and peace negotiations have begun. So it looks likely that the war on the Eastern Front is going to end with a peace, and the peace is likely to be very unfavourable to the Russians in those circumstances, as it did turn out to be. On the Western side, partly because things have gone so badly for the Allies, the Americans have had to enormously step up their contribution to the war. Woodrow Wilson had begun by envisaging the Americans to give mainly economic and naval help and recruit about half a million conscripts. Uh, By the end of 1917, the Americans were already planning to call up two million. They end up by calling up four million. Um, Their financial effort is also much stronger than before, and the Americans are making much more public diplomacy. One of the signs of this is the American War Aims Program called the 14 Points, which is issued at the beginning of January 1918. So the American war effort, the American commitment, is going to be much bigger than before. The European allies, Britain, France, Italy, have rejected the peace feelers that have been put to them. They're going to gamble on winning with American aid. The Germans, on the other hand, are moving to a decision to try to win the war by an all-out spring offensive before the Americans come in. That spring offensive turns out to be disastrous, leads to enormous losses for the German army so that it can no longer withstand the Allied advances from the summer and autumn of 1918 onwards. So actually, the way in which the war is going to end in the West, you can also see that prefigured. And, for example, Georges Clemenceau, the new French premier, predicts fairly accurately when he takes over in November 1917 how it's going to pan out that the Germans will attack, and if the French can survive that attack, then they have an excellent chance of emerging on the winning side with American support. 
Um, okay, David, thank you very much for that. That was, that was really fascinating. And just as a reminder, your book, 1917, War, Peace and Revolution, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. Okay, well, that's about it for today, and indeed for this year for the History Extra podcast. However, we will, of course, be back in 2018 with more from the world of history. Our next episode will be broadcast on Tuesday, the 2nd of January, rather than our traditional Monday release date. I do hope you can join us for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.